Join me in 1 Peter chapter 1. If you don't know where that is, you can go to uh, the last book, Revelation, and just put it in reverse, and uh, you will uh, quickly find 1 Peter. If you're not a Christian and you're joining us, we're really glad that you're uh, tuning in today. This is a great study for you to be part of because uh, this this letter so concisely puts uh, so many important uh, themes related to the faith uh, uh, together in just uh, five chapters. Um, if you're new with us, we typically work through books of the Bible. We did Ecclesiastes recently, and that was a wonderful book to consider in light of a pandemic, as that book talks about the uncertainty of life and how it talks about the exceptions uh, to the norms. And I would add today that First Peter is a wonderful book in our uh, more recent crisis, uh, as it speaks about the people of God being a diverse people, a people who will give a foretaste of the coming kingdom of God. It speaks about the church's character, about our mission in the world, in word and deed. It speaks about the government. It speaks about conflict, persecution, pastoral leadership, unity, and more. So I'm glad uh, we're in this book in this time. First Peter chapter 1, I want to read verses 22 down to chapter 2, verse 3. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again not of perishable seed but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And this is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we say with the psalmist, if your word had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. We delight in your word, even as we are afflicted and sorrowful. We pray you would feed us today, nourish us today by your word. Oh God, show us our, yourself and show us our sin, and then show us our Savior. For the Bible is the cradle wherein the Christ is laid. May we see him today, and may that change us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There's a little uh, jingle that John Bunyan wrote in the 1600s. Bunyan was uh, a pastor uh, in England, and he was imprisoned for 12 years for preaching the gospel. Uh, while he was there, he wrote uh, Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, and this little uh, rhyme uh, helps to summarize uh, much of what we're looking at in 1 Peter, as Peter has been and will continue teasing out how the church is the new covenant people of God. We have special privileges, we have new power uh, to, to do God's will, and so maybe you've heard this before, but this is uh, the, the, the rhyme. Bunyan says, run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings, it bids us fly and gives us wings. Now, I love that for a couple of reasons. One, it highlights the dynamic power of the gospel. The gospel gives us new power to live out God's word. It gives us wings, as Bunyan says. But I also love how it illustrates how the new covenant, in a sense, is raising the bar as it clarifies and deepens God's expectations of us. You notice how he says there, we are called to fly and not just run. And so this passage is about how the gospel really does change us and empower us to do certain things particularly 
to love one another, to put away the sins that destroy community. This gospel has brought new birth. It gives us new loves. It gives us new desires and new taste buds for what real joy is. We have new want-tos as new creations. We, we don't have to attend worship. We don't have to join a church. We don't have to give. We get to do those things. It's like telling me, Tony, you have to kiss your wife. No, I get to. I want to. The gospel has made us new creations, given us new power. And so I want us to look at this text today with that kind of, of, of new covenant hope uh, and new covenant uh, power. Last week we looked at how the, the, uh, Peter has been calling us to personal holiness as the people of God. And this text has an even more corporate uh, communal focus. Uh, grammatically, and as you look at this text, in Greek there are two imperatives. Uh, and uh, the first one is there in verse 22, love one another. The second one is found in chapter 2, verse 2, long for pure spiritual milk. Now, put away uh, all malice and so on in chapter 2, verse 1 is technically not an imperative in Greek, though it reads that way in English. But it does carry the force of an imperative, which is why uh, it's translated that way. So what I'd like to do is use these three uh, commands, these three imperatives to frame our outline today. And these are basically three exhortations for being a healthy community of faith, uh, a healthy community of faith striving in the new power that God has given us through the gospel. And so let's look at them. Love one another, remove the sins that destroy community, and crave spiritual nourishment. Three, three very timely exhortations for us uh, today. So love one another. Peter, throughout this letter, develops a beautiful picture of the church. We're going to see more of that uh, in the following weeks. And here the church is identified as family. You can see the familial language that Peter uses when he talks about a brotherly love, uh, a familial love. The, the, the main theme of this paragraph there in verse 22, as I mentioned, to love one another earnestly. Now this is basic New Testament Christianity, but we never outgrow it, right? Jesus taught the disciples in the upper room what he said was, A new commandment I give you that you love one another, and by this all people will know you are my disciples by how you love one another. Peter was there as Jesus washed the disciples' feet. He was there on that sacred occasion as Jesus gave them an example of humble leadership, as he gave them an example of sacrificial love, as he gave them an example that would be a, a, a shadow of his greatest display of humility and love at the cross. And now we are called to follow in Jesus' steps, to love one another. Our public witness is damaged when we are not characterized by love and harmony. Sadly, internal fighting and division marks many fellowships, many Christian institutions. And we need to be reminded that the real enemy is not within us, right? Among us, the real enemy uh, is the evil one. And uh, our mission is to advance the gospel to the outside world. But often we are not doing the, 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 the thing that Paul mentions in Philippians 1, standing side by side together for the faith of the gospel. Often Christians are standing face to face in opposition. I recall the movie, I was thinking about it this week, and I'm sure many of you remember this movie, Remember the Titans, um, which is about the integration of black and white students at T.C. Williams High School, one of my favorite movies. And the players represent the racial tensions that were present during that time. 
and the tempers are hot. Uh, and then the team goes away to football camp, and of course Denzel Washington is, is the coach. It'd be great to have Denzel as our coach. Uh, and they become a family at, uh, at football camp before the season starts. And eventually there are these great scenes of them singing in the locker room together uh, and, and just becoming a one. And at the end of the movie, there's a, a moving scene where Gary, who was uh, one of the, the white leaders uh, on, on the team, was paralyzed from the waist down. And Julius, who was one of the black leaders on the team, comes to visit him. And Gary's mom says, he only wants to see you. These two guys who had been at odds have become family. And when Julius enters the room, the nurse says, only Ken is allowed in here. And then Gary says, Alice, don't you see the family resemblance? That's my brother. And as Julius is visiting Gary, he says to him, when all of this is over, we're going to move in the same neighborhood together. They stopped fighting with each other, and they became a family, and they excelled as a team. Well, that is an appropriate illustration for our times, I do believe, and of this text. We need to recognize that the real enemy is not our brothers and sisters, but rather let us pull for one another. Let us support one another. Let us care for one another. Don't you see the family resemblance? We can truly say of other brothers and sisters. If football can bring people together, how much more should the gospel bring people together? You know, one of the most remarkable things said about the early church was their love for one another. Aristides, who was sent by Emperor Hadrian to spy out on Christians, came back with the report saying, behold how they love one another. If someone spied on the church today, what would be the conclusion? Well, I suppose it would depend on which church they spied on. But in some situations, sadly, the report would be, behold how they criticize one another. Behold how they fight with one another. IDC, there's enough brother bashing and sister smashing going on today, in person and online. So let's do something different. Let's be Jesus's people. Let's love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Peter reemphasizes this later in, a, in a, another very timely verse, chapter 4, verse 8, when Peter says, above all, so make sure you get this one, <laughs> above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Above all, IDC, let's keep loving one another earnestly. Let's keep this. Peter is saying here, in the, in the, by saying keep doing it, that you are. And so, amen to that. Let's keep doing it, as Paul says to the Thessalonians, more and more. Notice also in verse 22 how Peter now has basically um, put the holy triad together in two verses. In verse 21, he talked about their faith and their hope being in God. And now, in the next breath, he adds love. Faith, hope, and love. Now, I think that is significant because these Christians are in some very, very difficult times. So you might expect something radical being taught to them in light of their crisis. But that's not what Peter does. Peter emphasizes the basics in the middle of a crisis. And I would suggest to you, it's the basics that we need to be emphasizing as well in a crisis. What does the church need to be known for today? Faith in the Lord Jesus. 
our common hope that we have, that glory is coming. And that future hope gives us courage and it gives us comfort right now in the present. And we should be characterized by love. And all of this is made possible, verse 23, because we've been born again. How is it that there is a family resemblance? Even though we might look different externally, even though some of you have hair that needs to be cut, and some of us wish we had hair that could be cut, even though we have different ethnicities and we have different interests and, and uh, you like reggae and I like hip-hop and some like country and, and, and some like jazz and so on. How is it that we're all family? Verse 23, we've been born again. We have the same father. Peter already told us in chapter 1, verse uh, 14, we're obedient children. We're the father's children. Now, around this command to love one another, he actually says something about our conversion in two different ways. Being born again is verse 23, but notice I didn't mention verse 22. Another phrase that I think speaks of conversion, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. Not a very common way to speak of conversion in the New Testament, but I think that's what Peter is saying. The truth here is the truth of the gospel. The saints across modern-day Turkey had heard the good news of Christ's atoning death, and they believed. And the way Peter describes it is that they've obeyed the gospel. Now, again, we don't use obeying the gospel as much as we talk about faith in the gospel, but this is one of the ways the New Testament talks about uh, the appropriate response to the good news. In fact, you see one right here in the same letter, chapter uh, 4, verse 17 of 1 Peter, when Peter says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? So the idea is that those who are unbelievers are those who have not obeyed the gospel. Paul says this in Romans 10, chapter, uh, in verse 15, when he says, And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And then he says, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. So every proclamation of the person and work of Jesus implies that the, the listener not only believe, but follow Jesus. They submit to the lordship of Jesus. Hence, they obey the gospel. Now, I think that's important for us to, to keep in mind because one of the things that this phrase underlines, obey the gospel, is that salvation is not merely an intellectual assent to some ideas, but it involves personal transformation. It involves us yielding our lives to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And the purpose and goal of this, obeying the gospel, of following Jesus, notice verse 22, the second part. This has happened for, notice that little for. Why were we converted? For a sincere brotherly love. You were converted for this. Brotherly love, that's the Greek word Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. You wouldn't know it for their football fans. They're not very loving there in Philly. But, but you get the idea here. We were saved into a family. Don't you see the family resemblance? I got to see my sister. I only have one sibling. Got to see her this week. A very tragic death in our family. And amidst all the tears and all the, all the pain, we did have some fun together, including a couple games of cornhole. And as we were playing cornhole, she was telling some, some other members of our family, doesn't my brother look like me? 
And what makes us brother and sister isn't an external resemblance, but this fundamental commonality. We have been born anew into this family. We have obeyed the gospel. We look alike by our Christ-likeness. We look alike by shared values. We look alike by shared worldview. And notice how Peter describes this love. It's sincere. It's not fake. And it should come from, he says, a pure heart. And it should be earnest. Love one another earnestly. So this is not a casual indifference to the church. You cannot love earnestly if you don't know anybody. You cannot love earnestly if you don't know people's names and needs. He doesn't say love the people who are like you. There's nothing supernatural about that kind of love. Jesus says that even the pagans do that. What makes us different is that we, we are sacrificial in our love. There's an uncomfortableness sometimes that has to come and play with this kind of love. It's done from a pure heart. This is in contrast to chapter 2, verse 1, when he talks about hypocrisy. He mentions the heart because everything flows from our hearts. It's a pure heart that leads to healthy relationships. And so that's the first phrase about conversion around that command to love one another. The second there in verse 23, since you've been born again, and he tells us the instrumental cause of that new birth, namely the word of God. You've been begotten again, literally conceived again. That's how dramatic it is. And Peter grounds, like other writers, this call to love in new birth. First uh, John does this a lot. First John chapter 3, for example, John says, we know that we've passed from death to life. I wonder how you would finish that sentence. How? Because we love the brothers, John says. That's how we know. And how does this new birth come about? It comes about through the seed, through the word of God. It's living and abiding. This is a beautiful passage about the Bible. This is how God brings people to life. This is how God brings smart people to life and not as smart people. This is how he brings young people to life and uh, not as young people to life. There's only one way people come to life. It's hearing the word of God, specifically the gospel. And just as a side note, we should, we should take from this that we should speak the gospel to as many people as we possibly can because this is how it works. People come to life. He tells us that this word is imperishable. Peter loves this word imperishable, doesn't he? He's already talked about our inheritance being imperishable, how Jesus has, has redeemed us uh, not with uh, a perishable things and so on. The seed God uses to bring life is invincible and it's incorruptible. It's living and abiding. This same word then continues to nourish us. It brings us to life and it continues to, to cause us to bear fruit. And then he says in verse 24, he brings in Isaiah. As Isaiah in that chapter, this is a, it's important I think to remember why Peter is probably bringing this in. In chapter 40, God is comforting his people saying, I'm gonna bring you out of Babylonian captivity, out of, out of exile. They were strangers and sojourners, just like Peter's audience in a new covenant sense. And he proclaims the good news, comfort my people, comfort my people in Isaiah 40. And he compares the surrounding nations to a drop in the bucket and human leaders as grass that withers. And he says, you want to talk about human glory 
It's like a grass, piece of grass that withers. But God is sovereign. He is omnipotent. And then Peter uh, tells us the main reason for that quotation in 25, the word of the Lord remains forever. When all else is said and done, the word of God stands forever. And he says this good news. Isaiah was preaching good news in Isaiah 40. But Peter is preaching the culmination of the prophets. The good news that comes to us in Jesus Christ where real comfort is. The one who's led us out of the ultimate slavery. Out of the ultimate exile. And who will take us home forever. And so then, we as new covenant people of God have power to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So let's do that. Secondly, Peter says, we need to remove the sins that destroy community. Sometimes these chapter divisions and verse numbers are helpful. Here's a case where they're not. <laughs> these were not in the original. We, we added them later through the years. Uh, but if you didn't have that big number two, you would see the obvious connection. And that is these sins, you notice, and it's also linked by this word so or therefore to the previous section. To, to have this kind of brotherly love, you have to put away certain things, like an old garment. This is common language that is used throughout the New Testament, to rid yourself or to put it away. Colossians 3, uh, Ephesians 4 speak of this uh, same kind of thing. And here are the five sins that Peter mentions that destroy community. First of all, malice. That is, ill will toward another brother or sister. It must be put away. This speaks of a malignant attitude. And it usually involves planning to do evil. God's people are to be in great contrast to malicious people in our world. It involves rejoicing at the downfall of a person you don't like. What's happened in the gospel is that Jesus has given us a new calmness. He's given us a new peace. And therefore, we put away anger and malice. And this is one of the primary ways we show that Jesus has changed us by our attitudes and our speech. Deceit and hypocrisy could be grouped together because they're so closely related. Both signify a, a falseness and a fakeness. A sincere love is our goal. And so he says, put away deceit and hypocrisy. We may have to wear a mask during COVID, but we're not to wear a mask in our relationships. We are to not be hypocritical and deceitful. Loving one another earnestly, this is very important, requires trust. And trust is eroded when there's a fakeness and a falseness. And so we must always check our hearts on this. Even Peter, the guy who writes this, gets rebuked by Paul in Galatians 2. Paul says that to rebuke Peter to his face for his hypocrisy because he refused to eat with Gentiles. Even though Peter said he believed in justification by faith alone, there was a time in which Peter lapsed and he began to disassociate with certain groups because of their ethnicity. Envy must be put away. Envy points to a desire uh, for or a resentment of some privilege or benefit that someone else has. Whereas love involves desiring the best for other people, envy is hoping for the downfall of others. And then slander, it must be put away. Hurtful, harmful speech, which dishonors a person's character. Sadly, friends, this happens all, time, all the time in the Christian community. Gossip and slander are perhaps the most acceptable sins in the church. 
This involves spreading false stories about other brothers and sisters. So we should take a look at this list and do some inventory. Are these sins present in your heart? And take action, like Peter says here, and put them away. Many of these sins are expressed in speech, which is in great contrast to the pure word of God. And one of the practical implications of putting these sins away, you see in Colossians chapter 3, we looked at this uh, several months ago, verse, uh, verses 8 to 11, similar language. Notice what Paul says when he says, But now you must put them all away, anger, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, and here's the new birth, since that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And here's a practical implication of putting these sins away, harmony among different groups. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. You see, if we put these sins away, it will bring great change to human relationships. We can experience as Christians the blessing of harmony. Barriers, Paul says there, will be removed and unity will be enjoyed. Christ changes our relationships. Racial barriers, Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, are broken down. Cultural barriers, barbarian, Scythian, are broken down. Social barriers, slave, free, are broken down. This bears great similarity to Galatians 3, where Paul says there is neither Greek nor Jew, slave nor free, male nor female, you are all one in Christ Jesus. The gospel transcends these barriers. This made a powerful impact on the pagan world, and it will make a powerful impact in our world as well. And notice that Christological climax there. Christ is all and in all. Because Christ lives in each believer, Christ unites us all together. And Paul is not saying that these distinct characteristics are gone, our race, ethnicity, background, but that being in Christ takes precedence over all of these differences. Oneness in Christ does not mean external sameness. No, it's when we have unity amidst our diversity that the glory of Christ is magnified. And that won't happen if these sins are in our hearts. So we must put them away. Today and tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday until we see Christ. Third exhortation, crave spiritual nourishment. When we long for spiritual nourishment, we will not be marked by division or bitter disputes. Our hearts will be different. And so he says here, like newborn infants, Long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now the central admonition there is in verse 2, that you would long or crave for spiritual nourishment. That you may grow up into salvation, that is final salvation. We have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. And the way that whole process works is through the word of God. As we're nourished by it, uh, we are being sanctified right now. We're being renewed. We are headed for ultimate final salvation. And Peter says we're like newborn infants. A lot of folks in our church can relate to this analogy. <laughs> this corresponds with a new birth, doesn't it? And now we're like newborn infants. Some 
read this as Peter's writing to mainly new believers, but I don't think that's a necessary uh, point. It's simply an analogy about how we grow. We, we all, regardless of how long we've been Christians, grow in one way, as we're nourished, as the Spirit and the Word change us. This, this shows us how dependent we are upon God's Word for spiritual nourishment. One of the things I say to guys who uh, are in preaching classes that you have to believe in the cumulative effect of expounding the Word over a period of time. You know, one of the reasons we do exposition through books of the Bible is because we believe people are nourished through it. You don't always see change tomorrow, but there is an impact that's happening. It's kind of like, you know, when your kids come down for breakfast or, or dinner. You know, our kids, especially when they were little, they would come down for, uh, for dinner. It was like an Olympic event to get them there uh, and to be all washed up. And then as we would get around the table, they didn't look any different from yesterday. In fact, some of them had the same clothes on from yesterday. But then when you walk up the stairwell, you see their pictures and you say, man, they've grown up. Well, how have they grown up? They've grown up because they've come to dinner, because they've come to breakfast. And it's the same way with God's word. We are grown up over time as we are nourished. And so, you know, you need to know my goal as, a, as the pastor and, and, and uh, primary preacher here is not for you to remember all of my points. I mean, that would be impossible. I don't remember my points. But my goal is to nourish you and that there would be an ongoing impact from being nourished in the scriptures. He says it's like milk. Now, don't take from this what Hebrews says, because I don't think Peter's using this the same way Hebrews does when Hebrews talks about you need to get off of milk and get on the meat. Their milk is viewed negatively. Here, it's not viewed negatively. It's viewed positively. He's simply saying that we all need milk. We all need God's word for nourishment. You remember the old uh, slogan, milk, it does a body good. We could say the same thing about the church. Milk does a body good. Recall here the context of Peter. These people are suffering. They're in trial. What do they need? They need strength. What do we need today? We need strength. Where does it come from? Well, he's telling us. I mentioned that movie 1917 last week. If I could do another analogy from that. There's this scene in the movie where uh, one of the two soldiers that's being spotlighted, uh, he hasn't eaten. They haven't slept. They've gone through the night. There's a war going on. You know, planes are crashing. People are shooting at them, on and on and on. And then they, f they find a cow that had just been milked, and there was this pail of water, or milk rather, uh, in front of this soldier, and he just starts lapping it up because he's so hungry, so thirsty. It's a beautiful picture. We're in a war. What do we need? We need the milk of God's word. We need strength. We need spiritual nourishment. We need that which is, as he says here, pure. You know, impure milk makes you sick. So don't be nourished on something else. Be nourished on the word. It's pure and it's spiritual. Uh, this word spiritual is only used one other time in Romans 12 for, for reasonable or logical or rational. And it is the rational thing for you to do, a person who's been born anew through this word, to now find your nourishment in this same word. So long for it, he says. Or I'm saying crave. That's a couple translations. I'm using it mainly because when I was in college, we, just, we decided to read through the entire Bible in two weeks. And we put uh, milk, jug, milk, milk cartons all over the campus and T-shirts with cows on them. And uh, we were using this as our theme verse to, to crave the Bible. Well, here it is for us. Now, you guys know, if you're a baby, 
drinking milk is not a burden to you. It's a delight to you. And if you don't give your baby milk, it will be a burden to you, right? And so the command, again, is not something we don't want to do. It's something that we delight to do. And we delight to do it, verse 3, because we've tasted. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. If you've tasted the goodness of God, then you want more of it. It's an interesting play on words that Peter uses here. Christos, Christos. The word for good or kind and Christ. Christos is Christos. We need this strength and, and enjoyment as we meet the Lord in his word. Our souls melt away for sorrow. Strengthen us according to your word. Our witness flows from our enjoyment of the word. I mean, this is really evangelism, isn't it? Telling the world, taste and see that the Lord is good. I had the privilege and joy yesterday of grilling out and making my world-famous guac. And after I got it to perfection, I went around the house and said, taste and see. You need to try this. If we're not tasting ourselves, we won't hold it out to others. When we know he's good, when we know he's gracious, we will instinctively want the world to taste it. We will say to the world, I don't know what you're tasting, but you need to taste this. And our relationships change when we daily taste and see that he's good. You see, it's when the goodness and kindness of the Lord satisfies our souls that we are changed into good and kind people ourselves. It's his kindness and his goodness that makes us kind and good. You know, in James 3 and 4, James talks about how sinful cravings leads to conflicts, relational conflicts. We could put 1 Peter in juxtaposition to that and say that holy cravings lead to healthy relationships. When you're craving and tasting that the Lord is good, it will have a dramatic impact and bring about a relational peace. Now, the final thing I want to say, friends, and I'm out of time, is that I want you to see in 1 Peter how much he's relying on Psalm 34 throughout this letter because it's beautiful. And I only have a second to do this. But in verse 3, he cites directly from Psalm 34, uh, taste and see that the Lord is good. But also in chapter 3 of 1 Peter, in verses 10 uh, to, uh, or verses 12, yeah, verses 10 to 12, he cites again from Psalm 34. And there are several connections with that psalm and this particular letter. And I want to highlight them because these three themes uh, further develop how kind the Lord is and why you need spiritual nourishment. One of the themes is comfort in Psalm 34. David is in exile, just like Peter's audience is in exile. David is running from, Abs uh, from Abimelech, rather, who has lost his mind. And he needs the comfort and assurance of deliverance. So why is it that you, need, you go to God's word for nourishment? You need comfort. Another theme in that psalm is hope. Psalm 34 urges God's people to hope in God in their trials, which again is a theme throughout 1 Peter. We have a living hope. So why do we go to the word for spiritual nourishment? We need comfort. We need hope. Further, one of the themes in Psalm 34 and also in 1 Peter is honor. Both Peter and David say that those who trust in the Lord will not be put to shame. He quotes uh, Psalm 34, we'll see again next week. Peter's audience was being marginalized. They were being shamed. 
But Peter tells them that they will be honored, that everyone who trusts in the Lord will ultimately uh, be honored. You remember uh, chapter 1, verse 7, when he says, Your faith will result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So why do we need God's word? We need to be reminded of how it's all going to end. We need to take the long view of things. And that's what God's word gives us. The world may shame you now, but you will be honored. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. We get that from the scriptures. So my friends, that's my final plea to you today that you would feast on the word of God. Now how? How so? Well, I'll quote George Mueller from the 1800s who famously said, you know, Mueller was the guy who cared for thousands and thousands of orphans, a great man of faith. He says, my first business every day is to get my heart happy in the Lord. That's just another way of saying my first business of the day is to taste and see that the Lord is good. And when you have that kind of happiness, it will have dramatic impact on your life. If you're, reading, if you're watching this today and you're, you're not on some plan, maybe you're a new Christian, um, and you say, well, I don't know anything about the Bible. I didn't either, pal. Okay. Uh, just get going. I remember being in Bible studies as a new Christian, and they were like, hey, what's your favorite verse? I don't have any, man. I like these maps, though. They're fantastic. Like, look at them, man. They got colors on them. They're like, hey, man, let's all turn to Peter. And I'm like, who's Peter? I didn't know we had a guy named Peter in this. Oh, that's the book of the Bible. You just get started where you're at. Now, if you've been a Christian for a while, I'll remind you of something that James Stalker, uh, a pastor, a theologian, once said, that when it comes to your communion with God, you need a large, varied, and original communion with God. You need a large one. Make time for it. You need varied. Maybe you're stuck in a rut. You need a new plan. And let it be original. My friends, the Lord is good. How many of you know that's true? I wish I could get an amen from somebody today. Come on, somebody. He's better than fine wine and dine. He's better than avocado toast and pot roast. He's better than loaded baked potato and fettuccine Alfredo. He's better than crab cakes and strawberry milkshakes. He's better than sunsets and snuggly pets. He's better than romance and slow dance. He's better than shopping malls and baseball. His steadfast love is better than life. Crave the Lord's presence and goodness above all other cravings. Long for his return, where we will dwell in Emmanuel's land. O Christ, he is the fountain, the deep, sweet well of love, the streams on earth I've tasted, more deep I'll drink above. There to an ocean fullness his mercy doth expand, and glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. My friends, we're not in Emmanuel's land, but that's where we're going. May God strengthen us day by day by day until we see Jesus Christ and express to him, you are good and your love endures forever. Father, we thank you for your word today. Help us to love one another as brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. Help us to put away sins that destroy the community and give us an ever-increasing appetite for spiritual nourishment, for we need it. May we taste 
day by day by day, the goodness and kindness of the Lord Jesus until we see him. And we pray all this today in his good name. And everybody said,